Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to just come into your presence this morning and to sing and uh, for our lives to be filled up, Lord. I know that a lot of folks in here have had a tough week and uh, maybe they had tough situations going on at work or maybe just at home with their kids or in a marriage or just, Lord, uh, just the, the challenges that go along with even being single at times, Lord. It just, it's like we drag ourselves in here at times and we have moments like this where we can stand and we can go, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And we're so grateful for that, the truth of that. And may we listen as we open up the word with hearts that are wide open to whatever it is that you have to say to us today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to I uh, pray for a couple folks uh, that, that we're sending out over the summer. And I want to make you aware of this so you can join me in praying uh, along with me and our staff. Uh, a couple of our young adults who have been called to uh, go to some, do some short-term stuff this summer. One is Brooke Obi, and uh, Brooke is, is, uh, has already left, and uh, she is in Amman, which is a Muslim country. She's going to be there for, I believe, six weeks teaching uh, English and uh, just sharing the gospel with wherever she gets an opportunity to do that. Brooke's an awesome young lady, and I was so grateful for her. Grew up in our church. Then Sydney Dunlap is uh, going on the world race. We've got everybody's cheering section, like all over the place. Sydney is, is uh, going on an 11-month journey to 11 different countries um, and sharing the gospel and uh, just amazing opportunity. I know some of you have done the world race before and we're so proud of, of, of this young lady, Sydney, and, and her parents are obviously are, are on staff along with uh, Brooke's dad. And, um, and then uh, we're we'll praying for Christopher Williams and uh, Christopher... I think he wins. Uh, Christopher is, is going to Nepal, and he's going to be on a medical missions trip this summer to a place that d- truly needs, um, with all the earthquakes and stuff that have happened there, God's going to use him. Christopher has been in our church since day one. His dad's an elder here, Kasten, and his wife, uh, Donna, have been part of our launch team when we first started Westridge. So grateful for them and grateful to see this young man grow up in our church and God using him in such a tremendous way. Uh, so be praying for them as, as, as they go. Now, I want you to get your Bibles, and I want you to turn to um, the book of 1 Samuel. And, uh, you know, when you think of the word warrior, and that's what the, the, the title of this series that we're in uh, over the summer, I, I know a lot of different things come to our minds. Uh, for me, honestly, the, the thing that, that pops into my mind more than anything else when I think of the word warrior is this guy right here. All right? Freedom! You know... I'm Scottish, so, you know. Um, some of you, uh, maybe a few, you may think of this guy right here, Genghis Khan, the great Mongolian emperor. Or, for you know what, all of us need to be thinking about this right here when we think of warrior, the American soldier. Man, woman, doesn't matter. Absolutely. True warrior. True warriors. Protecting our freedoms all the time. Or you might think about uh, something like this. This is about the most calm picture we could find here that present in church, a UFC fighter. Um, I don't even know who he is. Then the next one, uh, maybe you think, uh, you know, for Sundays, it's your, maybe your Atlanta Falcon running back or maybe Georgia, Georgia Tech, whatever you like. Um, uh, or, or, you know, I know for some of you, when you think warrior, you think of these three guys right here with our manly beards. Um, 
Two of us can grow beards, one tries. Um, I don't know if you know this, in the, in the Bible, uh, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there's actually a word for uh, warrior. It's the word gabor, G-I-B-B-O-R. And what it means is it means, it means strong, it means mighty, it means valiant, it means passionate. And over the next two months, we're going to be studying the life and the times of a true Old Testament warrior, a man by the name of King David. Now, I know that when most people hear the name David, they immediately go to a story that involves a young boy, a sling, five stones, and a nine-foot giant. Well, I want you to know that there is so much more to know about the story in the life of David than just his encounter with Goliath. David was a true, in my opinion, a true uh, biblical definition of what a warrior is all about. He is strong. He was mighty. He was valiant. He was passionate. But as we're also going to see over the next several weeks, he was also a tender-hearted shepherd. He was uh, a songwriter. He wrote 73 of the 150 psalms that we see in the, in the, New, in the Old Testament. He was a, a strong leader, but he was also very honest and humble about his sins. And we're going to see a lot of that over the summer. But, but more than anything, I, I, the reason I believe that he was a, was a true warrior was he was a man who was extremely passionate about his relationship with God. Matter of fact... When you look in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 22, as the Apostle Paul is preaching to the church at Corinth, he, he describes, um, uh, he, he describes uh, David this way. He said, God raised up David to be their king, the, the nation of Israel. Uh, and he says, of whom he testified and said, God said this, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And that's the definition that we want to use this summer of the word warrior and throughout the series, a man, a woman, a young adult, a student, a single person, a child who is passionately seeking after the heart of God. Now, some of you may have just thought, well, I'm going to have to check out the summer brunch because honestly, when you talk about somebody who's passionately seeking after the heart of God, I'm a mess right now. I would not put myself in that category as of late. Quite honestly, I've been in a spiritual funk or I am, I am as far away from God as you could possibly be this morning. Well, before you check out, let me tell you a few more things about David that you might not know. He was a man who had a lot of issues, a lot of sin issues in this guy's life. He struggled with, not only with sin, but he struggled with doubt. He struggled with fear. He struggled with depression. He, he, had, he had some messed up kids. He, he struggled with lust. He committed adultery. He murdered his mistress's husband. He, he was a strong leader as a king, but he was a weak leader in his home. As a young man, he wasn't the oldest or most honored son in his home. He wasn't the tallest, most well-built male in his family, and he had somewhat of a melancholy personality. And yet, when it was all said and done, David is the only person in the Bible whose epithet reads, a man after God's own heart. He had a passionate heart for God. In spite of all of his shortcomings and failures, his heart for God was strong, it was mighty, it was valiant, it was passionate, but it was also tender, it was humble, and at times it was broken and it was contrite. This guy was a warrior. Because of that, God used David in a, in a mighty, mighty way. To this day, you can go to Israel, and he is to this day regarded as Israel's greatest king. 
He's, an, he's a great example of how the world's definition of strong and mighty and, and valiant and passionate warrior is, is oftentimes different than God's. He's living proof that, that God's method of choosing who he wants to use to accomplish his purposes in this life uh, sometimes runs contrary to human logic and reason. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at this passionate man who was a warrior after God's own heart. And as we do, my hope is that one by one, Every person in this room that we will all emerge from this series, we will all emerge from this summer as men and women and single people and young adults and students and children who have made a decision to be passionate seekers after the heart of God. Now, before we jump into David's life, I want to give you the story before the story because it's important that you understand what was going on in Israel before we get to David. For 40 years, before we ever hear the name of David in the Bible, There's a period that we see in the Bible called the time of the judges, and it's coming to an end. God had set up judges like Samson and Gideon and Deborah and others who were the judges over Israel. Now, also, I want you to understand, when we read this stuff, this is not just stories in the Bible. This is the actual history of Israel. It's the history of the Jewish nation, and it's also our history as God's children. The nation of Israel at this moment, when the judge period, the judges period ends, it was it, it, it was it was a time of spiritual apathy. Their love for God was stale. It was a nation. They were a nation of people that had drifted far away from God. And the only person that offered any kind of hope of leading Israel out of their spiritual drought was a prophet and a priest by the name of Samuel. However, as we get into this story in, in chapter eight, actually Samuel is getting older and he has some issues at home with two of his boys that did not sit very well with the Israelites. Samuel had taken two of his sons and put them as judges in leadership over the nation of Israel. But I want you to look at verse three. It says his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after. Gain, dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So in desperation, the elders of Israel begin to beg Samuel to help them find a king. They're looking around at other nations who have kings. They realize they don't have a king. They want a king. And so they tell Samuel, listen, Samuel, here's the deal. You're too old to actually be our king and your sons are a bunch of thugs. And so, but we want a king like every other nation. And feeling completely rejected, Samuel goes before God and he says, God, help me out here. I need help. And Samuel, and God says to Samuel, listen, Samuel, this is what you need to understand. This is what's going on right here. These people are not rejecting you as their king. They are rejecting me as their king. And you need to tell them that I am going to grant them their wish, but it's going to cost them dearly. It's going to cost them their freedom. Now, again, don't miss what God just said here. He he says, Samuel, these people have not rejected you. They've rejected me, so I'm going to give them what they want. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Elephant in the Church series. This is called the passive wrath of God. It is when God removes his hand from a situation or from, a peop- or from people's lives and lets them experience the consequences of them choosing their own way over his way. And so we get into chapter 9, and Saul, a guy by the name of Saul, is chosen to be Israel's king. Now, he is tall, he is handsome, he's the guy in school who would have been voted most popular, most likely to succeed. From the outside, he was everything the Israelites wanted in a king to be the one to lead them. However, on the inside, this guy was selfish, he was an egomaniac, he was filled with paranoia, and eventually, as we're going to see, he becomes very violent. 
And after two years of being king, his weak character began to scar his life. And eventually, not only does Israel reject Saul as their leader, but God tells Samuel, and now in chapter 15, verse 11, I'm grieved that I ever went along with this. I'm grieved that I ever made Saul the king of my people, the nation of Israel. So as a result of this, the Bible says Samuel then goes into a state of depression. Well, in chapter 16, the Lord comes to Samuel again. He says, Samuel, get up. Gut up and pull yourself out of this funk that you're in. And in verse 1, he says, very specifically, he says, fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Listen, while Saul is still sitting on the throne as Israel's king, God steps in and makes an executive decision and chooses a new king. And he tells Samuel, you're going to find my newly appointed king in the household of a man by the name of Jesse who lives in a little town that we sing about at Christmas time called Bethlehem. So, Samuel, get your anointing oil ready. But Samuel has some concerns. In verse 2, he says, how can I go? Because if Saul hears about this, he's going to kill me. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you, a young cow. And he says, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel goes to the little town of Bethlehem. He gathers Jesse and his sons. He's going to be doing some sacrificing. He's going to be doing some anointing. And in verse 6, it says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and he thought, well, surely the, the Lord's anointing is before him. But before Samuel gets too far into the selection process, God steps in and he gives a little bit of a course direction, a little little course direction, a little course change. We're going to take a little deeper look into God's selection process here. Verse 7, he says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now what's Samuel doing here? Well, he's looking for the tallest most muscular, best-looking son that Jesse had. It was like he was running the Mr. Israel pageant in Jesse's home. And God says, stop looking at the outward appearance because that's not what I'm interested in here. What I want is I want the heart. I want a man who passionately seeks after my heart. Samuel, I'm looking for a warrior. That's what I'm looking for. So the Bible says that Jesse runs seven of his sons past Samuel. How about Abimadad, Jess, or Samuel? How about him? Nope. How about Shema? Nope. Every one of them, each one of them, and every time Samuel looks and says, the Lord's not chosen this one. The Lord's not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. And then we get into verse 11, and Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, there remains yet the one, the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Jesse says, you don't want to waste your time with him. He's small. He's little in stature. He's young. He's just a shepherd boy. And Samuel says to Jesse, send him and get him, send for him and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes in here. And in verse 12, it says, and he sent 
and brought him in. And it says, the Bible says he was ruddy, which means he may have had red hair, kind of a reddish complexion. He had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And from that day forward. Now, I want to tell you something. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Hollywood could not have written a better script than this. What an incredible insight into what's important to God as he is looking for a man, as he's looking for a woman, as he's looking for a young adult or a single person or a student or a child to say, I'm going to use you for my purposes. God says, listen, I don't think like the rest of the world thinks. Man is impressed with the outward appearance, but my focus is what's going on on the inside of a person. You see, for the most part, the world has it all wrong. What is it that matters most to the world? Well, if you look at what the world judges and really what matters most to them, they look at power. If somebody is, is very powerful and, and has risen to the top of some powerful you know, job, we want to be like that guy. We want to elevate that guy. Or somebody who has just has risen up and they have a great position in, some, in the government or in some leadership area or something like that. Or maybe it's intelligence. I mean, I don't know about you, my son took the SAT yesterday morning. We judge students based upon their score on the ACT and the SAT. If that were the judge for being Pastor Westridge, I would have failed. I want you to know that. Sometimes it's all about fame. The world is obsessed with famous people. They don't even have to be talented. I could name names right now. But we're, I mean, we're just obsessed with these people, our physical stature. I was reading an article on, on Thursday about how the business world views people and how the article said that the average man who's six foot tall is going to average $6,000 a year in his lifetime more than the guy who's five foot eight. See, that's all outside stuff. But God's, most, God's mode of measuring is completely opposite from ours. I love this little speech that the Apostle Paul gives to the people of Corinth. Tell me if you can identify with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 Paul says, for consider your calling, people of Corinth, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Anyone else in here feel very encouraged by those verses this morning? Some of you go, those are my life verses right there. See, God's not into power. He's not into intelligence. He's not into fame. What matters most to God? Your heart. The spiritual condition of your heart. Verse 7, he says, the Lord, again, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you say, hey, what's the big, what's, what's, what's so big about the heart? What's the big deal about the heart? Why is that so important? Well, the condition of your heart affects everything. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Solomon writes, Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything you do. What does it affect? It affects my thoughts. It affects my mind, what's going on in my mind right now. It affects my will, the choices that I make, the, the, the deepest commitments, the things that I value. It affects my feelings. What am I feeling deep down inside my gut? 
What am I feeling about God? What am I feeling about you? Whatever. You, whatever. I mean, it, it, it affects my decisions. See, your heart is a window looking into what's really going on in your life. And I believe that God is still looking for men and women and young adults and students and children who are willing to passionately seek after them to him with all of their heart so that he may use them in a mighty way to accomplish his purposes here on this earth. And so my question for all of you this morning is, how's your heart? Not the blood pumping vessel that is inside your chest right now. But you need to understand, God places, he, the, the place where, where God, all your drives come from, your thoughts come from, your will comes from, your feelings, your decision. That's, where, that's what God is interested in this morning. How's that area of your life? Now, I want to give you six questions that we can all ask ourselves to examine our hearts. And I want to encourage you, if you're still in your small groups this summer, to, I mean, take some time this week and really dig into these questions deep, more deeply uh, in, your, in your small group. First question is this, who are you when no one else is looking? This is an issue of character, and character is an issue of the spiritual condition of your heart. It's not what you've done or how people see you. It's who you are when the outside world is not around now, I want, you, I want you to just for just a moment, we're going to have a judging moment here. I want you to take a look at the people around you. Look at the person next to you on both sides. Look at the people around you for just a moment. Is the person you're looking at right now the person who, are, are they really the person they say they are or are they wearing a spiritual disguise? Are you surrounded right now by spiritual posers? You go, man, that's rough, Brian, because I, I think I am. But no, seriously, I mean, you can ask yourself that question. See, what really counts is not what you see in front of you. What counts is what you can't see below the surface. It's it's what only you and God see that determines the condition of the heart. And here's where it's played out. So many areas, but just it's played out on the hard drive of your computer or your DVD player at home. It's the promises that you make or break to your children. It's reflected in how we treat our husband or our wife, the words that we say behind closed doors. It's revealed in our ability to keep our commitments before God. See, that's the stuff that really counts in God's eyes. That's a window into what our heart looks like. And even though David had tremendous faults, and we're going to look at those things, God saw a man God saw him as a man of character. The Bible says in Psalm 78, verse 72, that David shepherded the people of Israel according to the integrity of his heart. Second question, how do you respond when God says, wait? Why did God reject Saul in the first place? Why did, how did David get on the scene in the first place? What was going on here? Well, let me give you a little story behind the story. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel tells Saul, he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your army together, and I want you to go to this place called Gilgal. Now, Saul, was a, he was a, a military leader. He was a warrior in that sense. And he was leading the army of Israel against all these foreign nations and, and conquering them. And so Samuel says, go to Gilgal, and I want you to wait for seven days. And when, when seven days are up, I will come, and I'm going to sacrifice burnt offerings. And then I'm going to give you instructions because the Philistines are coming to fight you. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that according to God's law in the Old Testament, only priests were allowed to make sacrifices under the law of Moses. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul brings his army to Gilgal. 
He's ready to fight the Philistines. But the Philistines come in in droves. I mean, they're, they're, they way outnumber the Israelite army. And besides that, I mean, they are overwhelming in size. And the Israelites scatter. They go into hiding every place they can find, a place to hide in caves, wherever. They, they go there. And when the seventh day comes, Saul gets tired of waiting for Samuel to arrive. And so he disobeys God's command, and he impatiently takes the role of a priest, and he offers a sacrifice, and guess who shows up while the fire's still hot? Samuel. Listen, God's serious about his law. And Samuel, who's a prophet, but also a priest, break, he throws down God's rejection on Saul. And in verse 14, he says, But now your kingdom, Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you to do. His impatience cost him God's hand of anointing. Israel goes on to military victory, but God rejects Saul as a leader. And this is something I have seen over and over and over again in just the years of ministry that I've been doing. You'll, you'll see a young person, a young adult, a young single person who, who gets lonely. They get tired of waiting on God's best, and they marry an unbeliever or someone who is far away from God, and they live with the painful results. A high school student or a college student, who, who get, they get tired of the pressure of being a virgin, and rather than waiting, on, waiting till married, mar- getting married they, and trusting that God knows best and that his plan is best, they have premarital sex and they live with, with regret and the possible long-term consequences of that decision. Or people who, who need to make an important decision, and rather than wait on God's leading, they jump ahead of God and they live with the unfortunate results. And you go, what is all of that? It's an issue of the heart. It's a heart that says, God, listen, I don't trust you enough to wait. When you say wait, God, I want you to know I really know what's best for me. Isaiah 30, verse 18, Isaiah says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who do what? Wait for him. Third question, how do you treat those who have done you wrong? That's a big one. Another issue of the heart, do I forgive people who treat me wrong or do I hold them hostage and, and, and hold bitterness and a grudge because they've done me wrong? Do I hold people hostage with unforgiveness? I love this verse, verses in 1 Peter 2. Peter talking about Jesus. He said, for God called you, you, all of us, to do good even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example And you must follow in his steps. And here's what he says about Jesus. He never sinned nor nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. In other words, Christ is the greatest example of someone who forgave even when he had every reason and even when it was in his power to not only retaliate but to to seek revenge against those who caused him suffering. So how do you deal with people who hurt you? you, Are you a grudge holder? Do 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 you hold unforgiveness over them? And then how do you handle life's small assignments? Now, I don't want to steal the thunder from next week's message, but after God anoints David as the future king, Saul, not knowing really what's going on, except for knowing that God's taken his hand off of him and that God's getting ready to replace him, he calls for a harpist to come comfort him, somebody who plays the harp. 
And he, remember, he's just been rejected as king. Guess who comes in to play for Saul? David. God's presence has left Saul. He's still king on paper. David is God's man. David, knowing that he has already been anointed by God's priest to be the king, he comes in to play the harp for Saul. The spiritual condition of David's heart allowed him to walk into Saul's presence, put down his harp, and play whatever Saul requested for him to play. It's a major statement about David's character, about his life. It said he could be trusted with the small stuff. He was humble. He wasn't concerned about glory. He wasn't concerned about the image that he was projecting. He wasn't concerned about, you know, the fact that, wait a minute, I'm king. Saul, you're not king any longer. I've, had, I've been anointed. You've been, the, the spirit's left you. I'm not going to do this for you. He wasn't worried about what even other people might have thought about this moment. More than anything else, what David want is he wanted to do God's will, and God's will for this moment was for David to walk into the presence of a wickedly disturbed man and play the harp. Listen, one way to examine your heart is to ask, can I do something for God or for someone else without ever getting glory for it, without ever being recognized? Can I do something that seems insignificant to me when I'm more qualified to do bigger things? Luke chapter 16, verse 10, I love this verse. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. If you are dishonest in, a little, in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And then the next one, are you willing to just simply do God's will? One of the little phrases that gets left out sometimes when we talk about David being a man after God's own heart, and we, we've heard that over and over again, is the, is the little phrase that follows it. It says, I found, in Acts 13, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. How, why? Because he will do all my will. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because there's a guy, I know he's messed up, I know he does, he's, done, he's a sinful man, but he does my will. He's interested in pleasing me. He's seeking me with all of his heart. My will is the most important thing to him. And then finally, how do you respond when you've sinned? I think that may be the greatest case right there. Uh, Where's my heart right now? How do you respond when you sin? In this series, I mean, you're going to see a man who commits some horrific sins before God. He's, He's going to pay a dear price, but we're also going to see a man who responds to sin with brokenness and a repentant heart. So many of the Psalms are just simply David just pouring his broken heart before God, begging God for forgiveness, coming before God with a contrite spirit. And the question all of us have to ask ourselves this morning as we're putting our heart out there to say, God, what do you think? Is how do you respond when you sin? Do you respond with repentance? What's the time frame between the time when you sin and the time where you say, God, I'm sorry? Do you respond with brokenness? Is, is, does your heart feel filled with sorrow because you don't want to spend a moment outside of God's presence? Not even a second is good enough for you to spend outside of God's presence. And some of you may be going, I, 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 man, I'm deep in sin right now. Here's a promise to you. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds what? Mercy. 
Go to the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Many of you know this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I cannot tell you how thankful I am that those two verses are in the Bible because I have to go back to them over and over and over and over again when I keep coming before God with the same junk. And in my heart, I'm going, God, you've you have to be tired of me. And God goes, no, I am faithful. I am just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Does that mean we trample on God's grace? Not for a second. But we just want the time frame from our sin to the moments of repentance to be just, you can't even see how close. What's God looking for this morning? I believe God is still calling warriors for his service. He still has his anointing oil out and he is ready to commission people to do great things for him. But he's not concerned with wealth. He's not concerned with power. He's not concerned with looks and strength and status. He's looking for hearts that desire to please him more than anything else. Hearts that are passionate about following him. Hearts that value integrity. Hearts that trust him. Hearts that are humble. Hearts that are willing to let him receive all the glory. Hearts that are willing to just simply do his will regardless of what it may be. And hearts who will repent when they have sinned. And I know some of you are are just saying, Brian, it just seems like too much to ask. I want my heart to be in that place, but I don't know if I can do it. Here's a great promise. I learned this as a little boy. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are what? Fully committed to him. When you don't know if you can commit your heart to God, if you can be the warrior that God's calling you to be, if you can passionately follow God with all of your heart because you just don't think you can do it or you're looking at your past or your present and you go, I I just don't think I can do it. God says, you make that decision, you put that out there and here's my promise. I'm gonna keep looking throughout the earth to and fro and I'm going to come alongside of those whose hearts are fully committed to them and I'm gonna strengthen those hearts. You can't go wrong with that. You can't go wrong with that. God promises to strengthen hearts like that. You're not alone in that decision. Because I know sometimes we think, I'm going to be the only one in my family that makes that decision. Okay. God's going to strengthen your heart. I may be the only one in the group of friends that that makes that decision. God's going to strengthen your heart. I may be the only one in my whole class of students that are with me at whatever school you go to. That's okay because God is looking to and fro and will strengthen those whose hearts are committed fully to him. I might be the only one in the section in this church I'm sitting in. It's all right. God will come to you and he will strengthen your heart as you walk passionately after him. God's calling out warriors, those who are willing to passionately seek after the heart of God. And that's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for my life. I want us to bow our heads for a moment. I want to take a moment and open up these steps as we do often. If that's your prayer, if that's your heart, I don't, it doesn't matter where you are right now. If you are far away from God, come back to him right now. 
Brian, I've sinned too much, not according to God. If you are lukewarm, if your spirit is dry, if it's stale, come back to God. Repent. Change your mind about where you are and receive God's grace and forgiveness. I know so many churches, they, they go into summer mode and it's like we, not only do we go on vacation, but we take breaks spiritually. Not this summer here at Westridge Church. Let's go into this summer with our hearts on fire for the Lord. And let it begin right now. Let us be true warriors. Men, women, young adults, singles, college students, children who are passionately seeking after the heart of God. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be your Savior, I want to give you that opportunity right now. This is where it begins. Say, Lord, I have up until this moment rejected Jesus to be my Savior and I repent of that sin. I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. I put all of my faith and my trust in you alone. What Jesus did for me on the cross was enough. I can't get to heaven on my own. I can't think, make things right with God on my own. Jesus had to come to earth to do that. I receive his gift of forgiveness and eternal life right now in my life.